Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 60, and today we talk all things yellow engines with our friends from Tormont Cat. But before we welcome them, I want to welcome my co-host, as always, Lisa Katz. Welcome to Energy Radio. Thank you very much, Matt. How are you today? Good, good. And you? I'm good. We're here in person again, doing it together in the same room. I like it. This is fun. We have to share the mic. I'll try to remember that. (laughs) Uh, And today we get to share the mic with uh, two special guests. Uh, we have, I'll let them introduce themselves, but uh, we have Megan Roney and Saranjit Singh, both from Tormont Cat. Uh, welcome to the show today. Thanks Hello. for having us. You guys are doing well? It's a pleasure. Good. Yeah, good. very well. It's good to have you both on the show. Uh, for, for our listeners, and maybe, I don't know if you guys have actually listened to an episode or two before, but uh, we normally ask our guests you know, to give us a little bit of an idea on your background, like where you came from, how you started your careers. You can start wherever you like. Maybe that's from childhood. Maybe it's from, you know, when you uh, you finished uh, your your major education. Start from wherever you like. And Megan, do you want to start? Uh, yeah. Your- yeah, sure. Well, thanks, guys. It's great to be here. I'm, it's a pleasure to join the podcast. I've watched a number of episodes, so it's really cool to actually start participating. Um, I, I don't think I'll start from childhood. I think that might be a little early, <laughs> but um, maybe I'll start when I graduated. So entering the workforce, I actually was in the IT consulting world, uh, selling consultants to like banks and insurance companies. And uh, people as a product was probably my least favorite thing to sell. Really unreliable and unpredictable. So um, I was doing really well. I you know, they made a sign up for LinkedIn, which was, you know, over 12 or 13, 15 years ago. So it was kind of new at the time. And I was I was getting in, involved in a lot of opportunities. I just hated the product. And so um, eventually my dad said to me, hey, why don't you consider the electrical industry? He owned Roni Marketing, which was a electrical manufacturing rep agency. Hmm. Uh, but he didn't want me to come work for him. So he said, go get your feet wet and lighting learn learn the lighting industry and, and that's probably the best place for you to start so i did i worked for hd supply light more um at the time and you know it was a good a good learning experience um kind of got me involved in sort of the electrical industry and eventually it led me to working for my dad so he hired me um, not as a regular salesperson he didn't give me a territory he gave me no privileges um, I was actually, it was kind of a step down for me as far as my career, to be honest. Uh, it didn't pay me very much, was pretty was pretty harsh, but he said, listen, here's some product, go open up opportunities, and, you know, if you do well with that, then then we'll, we'll talk. And so that's what I did. So I, I started uh, pursuing end-user opportunities. So we were calling into the distribution network, like that's who I was calling on, but also end-users, and so... Um, we just had this strategy where we would, uh, you know, bring opportunities into the distribution network, which wasn't very common, and and start to leverage, you know, our ability to break into accounts and hopefully distri- distributors want to work with us more. And that that's started. That's what happened. So, you know, a year passed, and we were having so much fun. I became a real employee. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of earned my stripes, and then my uncle worked for State Electric, and he introduced us to a uh, energy developer who was looking out of Alberta, who was looking for uh, uh, sales representation in Ontario. And they said, you should really get involved with an agency to help you. And that was sort of my first exposure to um, power, CHP, the electricity market. It was really exciting at the time and basically I was told to go call on every power user I could in Ontario. The developer was actually offering uh, baseload power solutions so essentially islanding from the grid and uh, if the customer's paying 13 or 14 cents kilowatt hour they would come in lower and lock it in under like a 15-year agreement. So it wasn't an easy sell, Uh, it wasn't a quick sales cycle by any means but at that time Globe, nobody knew what global adjustment was when I was calling on customers. They didn't really know what I was talking about and the line item on your bill. Do you realize what you're paying? And so that really, um, I just found it really exciting. I had so much, we really made a lot of headway with different companies, like big companies, Walmart. We were building a steam plant for Chrysler. We were calling on everybody. And so that really was my 
my introduction into the industry and I loved it. I found it way more exciting than lighting, <laughs> as you can imagine. And then I worked for a few different developers. I ended up um, going to NG for a little bit. You know, NG is a, a, a big organization in the energy world, but I was also kind of doing contracting as well for NG, like mechanical electrical contracting. And at the same time, still trying to you know, still pretty immersed in the CHP market. And then eventually, uh, NG kind of pulled out of Canada, or at least Ontario, uh, on the mechanical electrical side, a lot of the people I worked with left. And then one of my buddies from Tormont uh, gave me a call and said, I, I hear you're, you're looking, you might be looking for work. And I think you should, you should come consider working for Tormont and then that the rest is history. So I've been there well, not much history, but I've been there for uh, just over three years now. Wow. What I find so interesting about your story, Megan, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think from an education perspective, you don't really come from like a technical background. Like you're not an engineer, right? I am not an engineer. No. I, but but you've gravitated towards these technical fields, which is which is awesome. What, what did you study? Uh, I studied psychology and neuroscience. So, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, way off the mark. I mean, I think the... Interestingly enough, our VP actually has a neuroscience background, so there were some synergies there. She appreciated that, but truthfully, yeah, it, it doesn't, it's not really applicable to the industry whatsoever. People sometimes say, oh, you know, sales and psychology, you can, you know, manipulate people. I'm like, no, nah, it doesn't, it does not work. I, I, so I was going to say that us engineers can be pretty neurotic sometimes. So that, that might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you're, you know, you're, you're well loved. So, uh, no, it's a, it's a, I bring a different dynamic to the team. Definitely. Um, and certainly I've had the opportunity to learn so much just from being surrounded by engineers and technical people. And so I've definitely come a long way, but I think the group of, of people that I call on, um, you know, engineers tend to go easy on you if you're not technical, at least that's been my experience, but for the majority of the time calling on C-level people or trying to get higher up in the organization, they don't really need those technical details. And so I find that that works well for me because I can just kind of have a, a conversation in layman's terms with them to sort of explain, you know, what the, the benefits are of our solutions and whatnot. So. And what's your current role now, Megan? I'm the business development manager, one of the business development managers in our prime power division. And um, it's a bit murky. Sharonjit, you know, he'll talk about his role. He's also a business and business development manager, but assigned to renewables. Uh, but the two of us work so closely together that, you know, we're we're both working on very similar things. Um, so I'm I'm really out there identifying the opportunities and and strategic partnerships is a big part of my role. And you know, the front end the front end work. So I pass it off to well, first I pass it off to Sharonjit, and then he eventually passes it off to the sales team when when we get the opportunity to a point where it makes sense to loop in sales. That's awesome. Well, thank you very much for that background. It's uh, really really cool, Megan. Thank you. So, Sergeant, can you maybe elaborate on your background and you know where you started your roots? So, uh, I started actually my roots. I was born in Fiji. Uh, oh, we're going far, from the very far, far, Yeah, for far away from Canada. And uh, coming from a third world country, so resources were always scarce and uh, always mechanically inclined to use something rather than, uh, you know, giving it away. So we always played around with old cars and, you know, trying to make it work with a gearbox from one unit into a engine from another unit and, you know, mixing and matching things. So that kind of provided me a path towards uh, engineering. And uh, upon completion of high school locally, I... Uh, attended uh, University of Canterbury in New Zealand, uh, which uh, which was also um, probably added to some of the uh, to some of the experiences in my life. Um, I attended university there for four years and then uh, after completing, I went back uh, to Fiji and yeah. uh, worked for the local cement company, uh, which was uh, producing cement using uh, uh, sea sand and river sand and uh, gypsum. And so I was in the plant operations. We had lots of uh, tugboats and barges. So obviously, um, uh, engines were always there. You know, I could look into it and work on it. And 
And the same thing in the plant, we had uh, large wall mills uh, that required power and we actually were one of the largest, uh, uh, actually we were the largest power users for the local electrical utility and we had some gensets on, on our side and gradually became friends with the utility folks and uh, you know, come three or four years later, I'm working for the utility. Oh, cool. Wow. And uh, so a lot of time was spent in designing power plants. I mean, PG has 300 islands, so you got to see, understand, uh, there's quite a few power plants uh, apart from the mainland. And uh, so some plants were very small, you know, 100 kilowatts each, maybe in total, and then the others were much more larger. Had a lot, a lot of exposure to medium speed engine power plants, design, operation, maintenance. And also vast majority of the energy at that time was coming from pump storage uh, uh, using Pelton turbines. Hmm. So I had an opportunity to spend some time in Tasmania learning operations hmm. of uh, uh, of uh, hydro turbines and then uh, also had a, a one year stint in uh, UK uh, as we had a large engine contract where I was the uh, working with Ruston Diesels uh, at the CAT factory. Uh, sorry, hmm. at the Ruston factory. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, then went back to Fiji and then you know, came to Canada in the early 90s. Uh, a lot of the experience which I gained in UK, such as CHPs in early 90s, CHPs was big in UK. And uh, it was just beginning here in, in Canada about 10 years later. So I think I was positioned right at that time and, uh, you know, joined Toramont in the early 90s and worked in all different roles as a design engineer, as a project manager, engineering manager, uh, operations manager rental manager, product support. Now I'm currently in a role of business development. I work together with Megan and uh, our uh, our teams. Uh, my role is uh, influencing consultants and uh, end users and developers from a technical perspective, bringing up the project to a point where it's uh, uh, past the feasibility stage and really into the detailed financial design and, and uh, a cost estimation and so forth. So. Uh, and then I hand it over to our account managers at that stage. Mm. Cool. Now, Sir Anjit, I know Megan and Lisa are dying to know, uh, as am I, what's the grid frequency in Fiji? Uh, it's 50 hertz. 50 hertz. Oh, <laughs> yeah, 50 hertz, yes. I interesting. Yeah, wow. it's it's uh, a lot of it is uh, Brit uh, British. Uh, British influence? Influence, you know, the same as Australia and New Zealand. And we also drive on the different side of the road. Okay, okay. Very good, very good. So more than just more than just energy content, we have uh, his, history and geographical and anth anthropological les lessons on this show as well. So, yeah, interesting uh, enough, uh, we've done. Uh, Tormont has actually done a few projects in Fiji. Actually, we did the power plant for Fiji Water through one oh. of the local companies here. Yes. Wow. Wow. And was that that was that through your connections? No, it wasn't through my connection. It was actually a local company that had provided the uh, the machines for the injection blow molding. And we work together with them. Oh, excellent. Cool. So you've both kind of mentioned Tormont and, and your roles within it. Um, to, to either of you, give us the rundown of, of uh, Tormont and, and your place in the market and what, what you're focusing on today. So Tormont is a, is a company that's listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. Um, it has been in existence from the mid-60s. Uh, two lines of business. Uh, one is the CAD dealership, uh, which originally started in 1993 as the dealership for Ontario. Uh, subsequently, uh, dealerships in uh, Manitoba and Newfoundland were acquired. And the most recent one was uh, the acquisition of the CAD dealership in Quebec and the Maritimes. So Tormont is the CAD dealer for Eastern Canada from Manitoba all the way to Newfoundland, from the 49th parallel all the way to North Pole. And geographically, uh, we would be the cat, largest cat dealer in the world. Mm. Uh, total of uh, more than 3,600 employees, uh, 1,600 technicians, 42 branches, and 400 technicians that are dedicated to power systems business. The other part of Tormont's business is uh, Simcoe Refrigeration, which is Canadian ice making company. And their specialty is industrial refrigeration, commercial refrigeration, and also hockey rings. Uh, Simcoe has uh, made a lot of hockey rings in, in Canada and, and globally as well. 
for, interesting. For our U.S. listeners, um, we do need a little bit of extra help making ice in <laughs> in, in, in Canada. It's not always cold, so, so, so we do need a little bit of extra hardware. We do not live in igloos. <laughs> right, that's right. <laughs> so there was, been, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. There was, there's actually an article about Simcoe refrigeration and the connection to New York City. Years ago, when Mr. Trump was mayor of New York City, uh, he actually had requested Simcoe refrigeration to uh, build or or renovate the um, uh, the hockey rink that's in the center of the city. So Simcoe oh. has some connections going back uh, to that. We are Simcoe is in pockets in U.S. different pockets mm-hmm. in U.S. Unlike Canada, where we're all across Simcoe is all across from uh, west coast to east coast. Mm. Cool, interesting. Um, so so I know Toramont for. Well, in terms of, uh, you know, markets, I guess, a few different markets. You guys have a mobile uh, department or you have a mining kind of department or sector that you guys participate in. Megan, I know you from the CHP space. Serenjit, you're, you know, working, it sounds like, in renewables. Obviously, you know, you, we collectively between CM and Tormont have been very active in the CHP space in Ontario for many years. Um, and because of the lack of funding, of course, now that, you know, that was available in terms of the, the drop in the PSUI or process systems upgrade initiative program, um, I think everybody is seeing a drop in CHP activity, specifically in Ontario. So I know, Serenjit, you're a little bit into renewables. And Megan, I, I, like in terms of what, what areas of the business are you really focused on? Or, and Serenjit, what areas of the business are you really focused on on a personal level now that CHP has sort of taken a little bit of a back step, at least in the province of Ontario? Yeah, so I would say that, you know, we're both kind of working on similar projects. I think we're still pursuing um CHP projects. I don't think that that's that's stopping for us. But you know what's different than maybe say two, three years ago, even a year ago, um, is it, you know I think there's still a desire for customers to curtail consumption, you know, improve reliability, but really it's the technology offering, right? That we're both we're both sort of in that in a situation where uh, you know we're having to pivot a little bit and mm-hmm. um, you know now when we you know I'm sure you're all aware so many of our customers have these aggressive net zero targets uh, you know we've had to really adapt to that and I think our approach is a lot more technology agnostic uh, than it was even two years ago so you know with our our at least that's what's happening within our prime power systems group and I think What's also changed is is our approach with customers. So, you know, it used to be the idea that you would manufacture, you know, a product, uh, take take that product, go sell it to customers and, you know, tout the benefits, et cetera. But I think today customers' preference is to really sit down with an organization that's knowledgeable across all the different technologies, sort of an energy integrator, if you will, mm-hmm. and you know, deal with someone that's really going to listen to their needs and then develop uh, a package around, you know, exactly what they're they're looking for. And so I think we, we're trying to position ourselves to to really offer that that type of solution versus, you know, here's a product and this is why you should buy it. And so we've really had to be more flexible. Um, and I think even flexibility and structuring that transaction. So, you know, do you need financing? Do you need, uh, you know, a power purchase agreement? Um, So we're really, our shift is, I mean, we still talk about CHP. We're still trying to sell CHP because we still think it's very valuable. It's a a good transition technology to to net zero, but um, we now have the option of everything else. So what's changed for me is I no longer just talk about CHP. I can talk about, all the technologies we offer, right? So battery energy storage, solar, um, you know, hydrogen. We'll talk about hydrogen. But uh, Sorry, yeah, that's- you mentioned solar there. So you're doing solar PV as well. You're integrating that? Yes. Yeah. Wow, cool. Yeah. Were you not on the Were you not on the great uh, no session that Saranjit? Engine... I wasn't invited. Oh, uh, <laughs> this is getting off. This is getting awkward. You know, I got to the end of the day, and Martin and I were talking, and he says, "Oh, Lisa, you missed a great discussion." I said, "Yeah, I know. I wasn't invited. I don't know who who did the invite come from." 
It was a great discussion. <laughs> Sir Andrew led a great. Maybe, maybe Sir Andrew, you can talk a bit about. Yeah, maybe I'll give Lisa uh, some feedback on that. Uh, she has some points on it. I think in order to uh, answer that question, I think uh, what I would look do is uh, look at some of the trends uh, that are in the marketplace. Uh, and uh, and this again, just like what Matt said, this was part of the presentation last week. Um, solar and wind, uh, these increasing uh, people are beginning to use them as more. For energy sources, uh, and that's great. Unfortunate thing is, solar and wind are not available when they are needed. Uh, so that's one point. Uh, the um, the the pricing for solar panels is decreasing, which is making it much more attractive. Uh, the price for lithium uh, energy storage batteries is decreasing. So so that's great too. But also the demand for uh, lithium-ion batteries is increasing. And uh, these are uh, conscious efforts by climate change requirements for to lower CO2. So, mm -hmm. so, so these are some of the facts uh, that are happening in the marketplace. But then there's also another factor. Uh, the number of uh, um, weather-related events is increasing. And as a result, these requirements for energy sources to be such, uh, to be able to work together with the utility, and be more resilient and uh, able to operate on its own. And this is where I feel that the, um, the internal combustion engines will still play a major role in, uh, in our energy uh, demands for the future. They will be the backbone of the system. Yes, we will have solar and wind and other energy sources that, uh, that will be, be used, but the backbone will still be uh, IC engines, whether it's diesel engines, whether it's CHPs, uh, they will still be there because of the proven fact that they are reliable and uh, can uh, adapt to faster requirements for load changes. I'm, I'm curious about how you guys are tackling kind of the, the business case around these solutions that you're tailoring. Like in the in the early 90s and the 2000s and even even in the early, you know, or in the 2015 to 2020 era when when uh, the uh, you know the ISO OPA was printing money for these types of projects. The 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 math was you know relatively simple, right? And and it was you know what's the electricity price? What's the gas price? What's you know we talk about spark spread, and it was pretty straightforward if you're looking at one technology. But as soon as you get and you start talking about resiliency, you start mixing in different technologies. Everything, all the layers get that much more complicated. How, how are you? How are you folks navigating that with uh, with clients and developers and and, and owner operators? I can answer that. I mean, at least from my perspective and what I do, um, we we're trying to educate customers as much as possible, and it's it's essentially up to them what they want. So you know, there's going to be a capital expense to uh, integrating battery energy storage solutions and if you want reliability at the same time and you need um, you know uh, resiliency like however we structure the package I think our job is to really approach customers and say this is really what this is going to cost and so giving them options is really the only way we can go about it and oftentimes you know see we come back to CHP and it really is the most uh, economical solution in a lot of instances um, so we tried just try to go through the process organically as far as the business case goes we're still working on that um, you know if we're offering customers through Tormont Energy a solution where we'll um, you know provide the equipment uh, that that becomes a little bit more complicated right it's it's really tough to find residual value um, and, and sort of create a business case for it that makes sense but so it's it's definitely not without its challenges but it just depends on the customer's ask and what they're looking for. And, and our job is to really say, okay, we can do this, this, and this, and this is what it's going to cost you. And so there are your options and, and it's about picking their priority. So if it's, if it's carbon emission reduction, then, you know, we're going to install a battery system and that this is, this is what it's going to cost. Um, if it's, if it's resiliency, then, um, you know, this is what we'll look at and, and so on. So I think, you know, it's it, it's just tricky. It's definitely still a challenge, but it's really what we're we're kind of making it up to the customer, if that makes sense. 
And just out of uh, curiosity, your solar, wind, and energy storage technologies, are they cat-branded? Is that what you guys have done? Like, and, and presumably, obviously you're manufacturing engines, but I don't think you guys are doing the actual manufacturing of uh, battery storage, solar, or wind at this point, right? Yeah, I'll let your engine elaborate. So, so CAT actually has partnered up with one of the leading manufacturers for solar panels. They are manufacturing the panels for CAT, but it is uh, manufactured to a much more stringent uh, uh, quality assurance program than than the industry. And it is because of a global deployment. Uh, the same panels can be used on uh, a coastline. It can be used near the North Pole and and also on a sandy desert. So CAT has quality assurance programs such as hailstone test, uh, abrasion test, and ammonia test. So, so that's 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 on the solar panel. CAT also has DC to AC inverters, again through an alliance with another company. And we have strategic uh, vendors that we work together for um, uh, for racking uh, that can be provided for the solar panels. Mm. For the battery energy storage system, CAT actually designs uh, the the battery energy storage system. These are 20 foot uh, ISO containers, manufactured and tested at the Griffin factory in in US. Mm. And these are shipped across globally. Now, CAT also has developed a, a microgrid controller mm. uh, that can control all the different energy sources. So there are three versions of this controller, and depending on the complexity of the of the of the microgrid, the number of energy sources this can be then um, then added. Uh, a selection can be made on which controller to use. Mm. So we have. Uh, most of the uh, the equipment that is required for a microgrid, there's some back office operations also that can be performed uh, using the microgrid controller. And then we have strategic vendors that will supply uh, a total solution that uh, Tormont can provide from a 10 key applications. Obviously, uh, work together with consultants like CEM who have a lot of depth in the industry and provide the consulting engineering experience to projects of this nature. Hmm. Very cool. Megan talked about it uh, in passing. Maybe one of you can unpack uh, Tormont Energy uh, as a as a business unit. What 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 are you what need in the market are you filling? How does that work? How do you engage with? Uh, so so clients? Tormont Energy is very interesting. So when when Ontario was deregulating its industry in the late uh, late nineties, Tormont actually stepped up to the plate and uh, you know uh, made a decision to build power plants. And the first one was the Waterloo landfill site where we we basically take the landfill gas, we clean it uh, uh, using our own developed equipment, and then we uh, uh, use that uh, gas to run on L, uh, CAD gensets and export the power to grid. Uh, so that's been in operation since 1998, and we operate and maintain it. Uh, in also at the same time, Tormont uh, in Sudbury developed two power plants. Uh, these are natural gas units. These produce electricity for the grid. And then um, we harness the hot water and uh, uh, so hurry, uh, we harness the energy from the engine jacket and exhaust and we provide hot water to the local community and uh, chilled water. So, so these projects have been in existence for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, in Ontario, uh, the electricity industry was uh, re-regulated to, uh, uh, at certain times, so, uh, which uh, which hasn't been too favorable to us. So as a result, uh, Tormont Energy has continued on, whereby we're designing, building equipment for our customers, power plants for our customers, and actually we're operating and maintaining them through long-term service contracts. Mm -hmm. And we also use the uh, Waterloo facility for for training up uh, uh, some of our customers' employees uh, in terms of uh, uh, operators for new uh, landfill sites and so forth. So, uh, so it's... Uh, become a flagship uh, um, entity for our organization. And we continue to look for opportunities in the marketplace uh, if uh, a customer is not able to uh, financially secure it and if, if the objectives are right enough, Tormont Energy will pursue to invest in projects like that. Hmm. And uh, for, for listeners of the show, longtime listeners of the show, our first guest, uh, Martin Lunsink, who founded CEM, is a tie with Tormont Energy. Tormont Energy was his uh, most recent employer pre-CEM. 
so there's uh there's a there's a long uh, good history there and uh, a lot of the a lot of the folks still uh your colleagues and and uh, go back go back a long ways with martin and and we heard a, a story the other day that i had never heard before about about those days so kind of fun to, to unpack that but also fun to hear about what's coming down uh coming down the pipe both figuratively and literally um on that note i'll let you take the uh the big question yeah the big topic that we uh can't seem to get uh or i guess we megan we, got it in early oh she she, she did she, she exactly beat our, she beat our average i know uh, right <laughs> well if, if guests have not guessed or uh not guests uh, rather listeners have not guessed what we were going to talk about here it's hydrogen the big topic of the day and uh really of the year um, and so I'd love for one of you to share Toramont's fairly new, I think fairly new, it's what, maybe my, maybe a month old now in terms of the news release that you guys have, and you'll have to correct me here. I think you have either a engine or multiple engines that can run on 100% hydrogen. But again, would love for one of you to talk a little more about that. Yes, uh, that was the mostly anticipated news for a long time. We, we knew Cat was doing some designs and validating equipment, uh, but until all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed, uh, Caterpillar uh, didn't release any information. And subsequently, uh, last couple of weeks, uh, there has been some news release. So uh, basically three three items uh, that uh, came through. And the first one is that the, the current uh, natural gas gensets that are out in the field, uh, they can operate uh, with up to 5% hydrogen without any changes to the equipment. So that's great news. Uh, yeah. So the current owners can use hydrogen up to 5% uh, in the natural gas. The second point is that uh, if somebody wants to use between 5 and 25% hydrogen uh, in the natural gas, CAT's coming up with a kit that will be available to customers next year. And uh, this kit is basically to install some Viton seals so that hydrogen doesn't leak uh, and uh, improve that and also some... Uh, spark arresters within the system from a safety perspective. And this kit, be, kit can be installed within a day or so and tested. And uh, that would uh, allow the current units to function uh, with up to 25% hydrogen. And that's, uh, a good, uh, that's a good place to pause and remind our young listeners to pay attention in grade 11 chemistry if they haven't touched <laughs> it. Because the hydrogen molecule is a lot smaller than uh, than uh, a natural gas uh, molecule. And so the, it, it has an ability to permeate um where where natural gas doesn't right that's the that's the underlying absolutely, chemistry absolutely, there, right? absolutely, yeah. absolutely and plus the calorific calorific value of hydrogen is much lower than of natural gas so so the great news is that cat has a unit uh that can operate on hydrogen it used to be a, a 35 16h natural gas unit which would run on two megawatts on natural gas uh with 25 percent hydrogen its uh, power output is uh limited to 1982 kilowatts. And with 100% hydrogen, uh, it's uh, down to 1,232 kilowatts. So uh, 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 there is a D rate on it, but still uh, we have units that are available uh, that uh, can operate on 100% hydrogen. What dr what drives the D rate, Saranjit? So D rates are uh, uh, basically the calorific value of the unit uh, of the gas. So there is 100% hydrogen and calorific value of hydrogen is much more lower uh, than that of natural gas. So that drives the D rate uh, on the on the equipment. The equipment still has capability to uh, produce uh, much more higher output on natural gas. I mean, the key thing here is the equipment is the block is so the natural gas engine block is the same as the engine uh, block for diesel engines. Mm. And uh, the hydrogen gas block is exactly the same. It's the combustion system that's changed. So we have uh, air in cylinder start for this unit. So gas pressures are much more higher with hydrogen and uh, uh, the turbochargers will be much more bigger and uh, and because of the more air that's required. Uh, apart from the, the combustion related system, all the other systems are very much the same as that for uh, for the current natural gas units that we have. Hmm. So it's, it's building actually, you can see the transition that has occurred from you know, a diesel engine to a natural gas engine, the same platform is now used for the hydrogen. Interesting. Now, now, Sir and Jeter, Megan, that 
the the engine that can run on 100% hydrogen today, that's just one engine, or do you have multiple in your lineup that can run on 100% at this point? Right now, it's the G3516, but CAT also is testing other, such as the G3512, so it's already been tested, and okay. uh, the G3520s as well. So they'll be, they'll be coming up very shortly. In fact, we can get... Uh, 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 performance data for these units uh, depending on what the application is okay and then the modification kits that you were speaking about that could be on any caterpillar engine that's already existing in the field or are you limited towards certain specific or certain or specific models it will be the north american manufactured units there'll be a separate kit for the Mannerheim built units okay mm. okay cool so is there a I'm dying to know, uh, is there a competition internally who sells the first 100% hydrogen? Like, <laughs> has, has Lou put a bounty on, on out on that and saying, you know, here's the prize? Well, we, we all work as a team. We win as a team <laughs> oh, uh, uh, and uh, we lose as a team. So uh, if the sale goes through, it will be the team that's winning. And I think ultimately the Canadians will win. Canadian community will win because hydrogen will help lower CO2 emissions. So from a climate change perspective, everybody wins. What a great response there, sir. Yes. <laughs> now, now Megan's going to give us the real answer. <laughs> Megan, what do you think it's going to take to get, like, what, what what kind of client or kind of scenario, you know, and I know this is off the wall. It certainly wasn't on the sheet. I told you we weren't going to follow the sheet. Um, <laughs> but, like, what kind of confluence of events do you see in your mind's eye, knowing the space, uh, to, to get a 100% hydrogen uh, project going? Ooh. Well, I can tell you if if we're talking about green hydrogen, um, it's going to be expensive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the numbers are not pretty. And so I think realistically, our first few projects will maybe be a collaboration with either Caterpillar um, and a customer. And there's got to be incentives there and, 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 and money because I don't think... Um, customers are going to be willing to take on that financial risk today. Um, you know, and, there, and there's there's challenges. I think everybody knows that I, most people realize that it's hydrogen is really going to be a big part of the story when it comes to our net zero initiatives globally. But, you know, right now supply and demand is a big issue. Uh, just not there. So if we're going to scale development, we really need to we need financial support or incentives from the government. Um, we need investment in infrastructure because it's it's not there yet. And obviously policy, I think I'm going a, a little bit off the cuff, I guess, but policy's a big one, right? I think there's lots of bold statements being made by the government. The federal government is, you know, there's a really grand initiatives, but I don't think there's a lot of policy, at least long-term policy, around hydrogen to really give anybody a clear idea of, you know, what what's required. And so that's, that honestly doesn't help us make com customers feel comfortable moving forward with a project. They're very interested in it. It's just, yeah, I think until we really have a clear view of, of the hydrogen story in Canada and, and how it's, what its role is gonna be in the path net zero, um, you know we're going to be we're going to be challenged so i don't anticipate we're going to be supplying these engines probably on a made to order basis mm. uh, come next year and it's really going to be about pilot projects and, and what incentives that we can look mm. at to support to support those type of projects so does that answer your question yeah i think it's it's unanswered to a question that doesn't have a clear answer right i think you're 100 you're right. right it's a it's you know we're, we're 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 drawing the map as we move forward into uncharted territory together yeah the, the key here is that the technology is here that can use hydrogen to produce electricity it's the uh, infrastructure that produces the hydrogen is not mm -hmm. there so uh you know like megan said policies and uh, you know um you know equipment uh, such as electrolyzers using off-peak power to produce electricity i mean our grid is pretty much clean as it is using uh, that produces electricity from nuclear and uh, biogas and landfill gas and so on, solar and wind and so if uh, you know there were policies that were available that would provide incentives for producers to use the energy that's available at night 
to produce hydrogen, uh, that would be very attractive and mm. that could go into the infrastructure. Uh, I mean, there are countries already in Europe uh, that have pockets uh, where there is more than 10% hydrogen in the line. And so they are ahead of the game compared to us. If you were to take a guess, guys, where do you think your the first Caterpillar 100% hydrogen engine will land? Like from a from a provincial standpoint across Canada? On a CEM project. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, if I had to guess, I would say Ontario. But sorry, you 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 would or you wouldn't say Ontario? I would say Ontario, although there's lots of opportunity across the rest of our territory. It's, you know, it's just the nature of things is that a lot of the guys across our territory in other provinces, um, you know, aren't necessarily as focused on the hydrogen side of the business as maybe Sharon Jett and I are, and we are mm. located in Ontario. And naturally we have um, an easier path with customers because we meet with them and we, we, well, not so much in COVID, but we, we usually see them um, in person and, and the conversations are just easier to have. So if if I had to guess a pilot would be close to home, close to our, our Brampton head office. But that's it's really up in the air, at least it's a good question. I'm not really sure. <laughs> we don't know yet. Well, and, and the reason I was asking was was to kind of see if you guys have some visibility on, you know, based on what Serenjeet was saying, like obviously there's the manufacturing, so to speak, of hydrogen, that fuel source that you guys are going to be dependent on, right? So there's a lot of, I mean, obviously everything from BC to Alberta to Quebec, um, you know, Ontario, those are kind of the hot spots in terms of some of the discussions, at least that we've been having with clients uh, for the manufacturing of hydrogen. So uh, yeah, was kind of curious as to hear what your your thoughts were on that. Yeah, and we need to rely on renewables, right, for to produce green. That's right. Hydrogen. So, um, you know, we, Ontario's got a relatively uh, clean grid for now. I mean, when there's an argument when the nukes go down, that <laughs> you know, it's going to change slightly. But overall, yeah, I think um, if if I had to guess, it'd be Ontario. Yeah, and I think you know, you guys both mentioned policy. I mean, policy got us. It, it took aggressive. Uh, electricity pricing policy that got the uh, worldwide, not just in Ontario, that got the solar panel, you know, pricing to where it is. And I think the same is going to be true for hydrogen pricing. And you're mm -hmm. seeing that in the U.S. with their uh, DOE uh, hydrogen shot. Uh, they did it with solar. Now they're doing it with hydrogen. They're trying to drive that curve down so that the fuel is is comparable. And and I think you guys are both both spot on. And um, and policy is going to be what's what's needed. So. I love, I love Syringe's statement though that the the, the technology is there. We're, we're we're ready to go. We're waiting. For it, so. Yeah. C curious to also think or also ask. You know, based on what the ISO has reported more recently in terms of, you know, the increase in terms of natural gas fire, you know, fired power plants needing to be used during this uh, nuclear, not just refurbishment, but in the retirement as well. Do you think that's going to spark the adoption of hydrogen fueled CHP in Ontario or do you have any comments on that? Um, yeah, I think it. I think it may. I mean, it's. I. I think it's going to happen regardless, right? It's interesting because, yeah, I know the report came out, and I listened to the minister talk about it yesterday. And you listen to Energy News as well, I know. And I, just, I get <laughs> my information from Energy News, and um, yeah, it's a. It's a tricky one. Um, <clears throat> you know, I was, it's funny because I think we have, right now, we have a lot of a, a good energy mix and the energy supply, you know, in Canada, you know, we're an affluent country. It's it's pretty secure. I, I don't, there was uh, some news stories uh, it, coming out of China, the Chinese state authority recently, like, a, like just recently last week or something, but they stated that um, the Chinese state authorities said, you know, great news where we finally dug enough coal out of the ground to we can confidently get through winter. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't think that was a news story that garnered much attention right over the past month. But China has had a number of rolling blackouts in some cities recently. They've been curtailing industrial production. And, you know, they were worried about having enough fuel to make it through the winter. Mm. And so I think this we're seeing the pressure with 
with customers that, you know, get off gas. There's the cities are, you know, there's a lot of municipalities that are um, are pro shutting down the gas plants. And obviously we have to transition away from fossil fuels, but I think, and we're fortunate in North America, we right now we have that security, but in Ontario, when the nukes go down, you can't really just shut the gas off and everything's going to be okay. Right. And I think that's one thing that is missing. I think politicians maybe are afraid, like the scale of global of, of climate change is massive, but the scale of transitioning to, you know, a net zero economy is also massive. And so we can't just go from A to B overnight. And so I think um, hydrogen is part of the story. The issue is, is that, you know, we don't have the infrastructure. And so I think when it comes to gas, if we don't want to have rolling blackouts across Ontario and disrupt business and add 60% cost to people's electricity bills, you know, we need to, we need to, hang on to gas for now and I, and that's a tricky situation i really believe that you know there's grand statements but i think politicians are scared to to be honest with the public about the challenges that you know we would face in, in shutting things down and so yesterday listening to the minister he was pretty he was pretty clear that um you know let's put a plan in place but it's probably going to be a very slow a slow transition and i think hydrogen can certainly speed that up and and it, it is really going to be in a, play an important role to get us down that path a little faster especially with with the nuclear fleet being in you know under commission so no that's that's great um and for our listeners uh tune into this afternoon's episode of energy roundtable because i will be covering off some of the COP26 announcements that Trudeau made uh, in Glasgow. So anyways, just a bit of a side note there, because it kind of falls into what you, a little bit of what you were saying. That's at least shameless plug number three. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Once in a while, it's a little bit of a BDN marketing problem. Okay, it's your show. It's your show. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, So I'm putting you a little bit on the hot seat here, Megan, but um, you may or may not be aware. Some of our listeners are probably aware that CM is involved in what we call, or not what we call, but it's called the 30 by 30 initiative. Uh, it is put on by Engineers Canada. And so it's basically trying to drive uh, the adoption of basically more engineering, more women in engineering specifically. So we've taken on the initiative and the challenge to basically hire on 30 women uh, by 2030. So that's the idea is to raise the percentage of women that you're, you know, you're taking on uh, within your individual companies. We're also involved with the Equal by 30 30 initiative, which is uh, launched by the Clean Energy Education and Empowerment um, that group. And that's that's still aimed really towards, um, you know, women, but also just general diversity and inclusion as well. So as a woman, um, you know, who has obviously been in the energy space and in male dominated sectors for basically, you know, I would say 90% of your career, maybe even, well, it sounded like almost like 100% of your career. Have you, like, what, what has your experience been like working in those those sectors? And have you had any, not issues, but, you know, do you have any stories to tell in terms of how we can be better as CEM, as Toremont? as you know any organization listening out there to just do better to get more women involved in the space and retain more women no oh, lisa there's so many stories <laughs> we're not going to get into it all. <laughs> somewhat in the past but no i think if if we're looking at the energy sector you know for being realistic uh you know the industry probably has a long way to go before we you know, fully reach um, gender parity, I guess. But I do think that's changing. Um, when I started, I, I won't go as far back as IT, but when I started in the electrical industry, which was over 12 years ago, um, I I think the landscape then is is vastly different than what it is today, which is not a bad thing. I remember we organized um, a female golf tournament for all the women in the electrical industry across the GTA. I think we had like 30 people <laughs> at that tournament. So, um, you know, not not a ton. And um, then when I moved into contracting and, and the electrical um, 
mechanical world, you know, it was really, there was women, I was surrounded by women in the office setting, but I was really the only person who was customer facing as a female. And my customers were for the most part male. So I was really surrounded um, by men. And now that said, I think um, it created opportunities for me. So it wasn't without its challenges and I definitely have weird stories and, and things that you wouldn't believe, but there, you know, those unconscious stereotypes existed. There was nothing I could really do about it. Um, I just had to find a way to sort of fight against them. And I think the easiest way, or at least for me, the easiest way to get past those stereotypes was to demonstrate value, right? I think mm. um, that just earns you respect. And it doesn't take a long time to, for, you know, to, to earn that respect. I, I became, I knew that I had to become adept at what I was doing in in you know electrically i knew my product um intimately i did whatever i could to understand what i was selling what i was talking about dealing with end users is pretty easy because they tend to know less than you but in the distribution network um or when you're dealing with industry partners and colleagues you know they they are a little bit more um not necessarily critical, but their expectations may be different of you. And, and so my secret weapon really became when I was calling on the distributors, arming myself with knowledge, which I think ultimately surprised them, right? Eventually the response was kind of like, huh, you know, this girl actually maybe knows what she's talking about. And most people have those, those stereotypes, you know, being young and a female, but I think as soon as I demonstrated, you know, right off the bat, I can play ball. I know what I'm talking about. And I quickly earned their respect. And, and then it was easy for me to form relationships, right? Because I think that encounter where they expect you to not know much. And then when you do, you're suddenly memorable. Mm -hmm. And I, I I found that that was actually a benefit. Like I, I had an advantage over my male counterparts because of that. Now, it's not it's it's easier sometimes for women to get in the door and, and build relationships. And, and sometimes it's harder to maintain them. Uh, I grew up with two brothers. I've seen, you know, seen and heard it all, truthfully. <laughs> um, so maybe that helped me, you know, in working in male-dominated industries, uh, be a little bit more comfortable, uh, less phased by by certain things. But, um, you know, I I think really the bottom line is is competence, and and it, this is also I'm coming from a sales perspective, so it's a little bit different than I think, you know, engineers. And and fast forward to joining Tormont. You know, I I found the energy industry a bit more progressive than mm. you know construction, as you can imagine, or or contracting. So yeah. um, when I came to Tormont, I was actually working for Engie, and I remember walking into an interview and or not an interview, sorry, uh, it was just a, a general meeting as a customer, and the two engineers in the room were female, and they had been with the organization for a long time, which I thought was really cool. Unfortunately, um, one of them has since passed. But Akila, the other engineer, she's she's still with us. And Mira would be still with us today, too. So that was kind of unique. And then um, when I was interviewed, uh, our vice president of power system, Sandra, is also female. Um, and she's, uh, you know, she's in a big leadership position with Tormont. And she's really pro-women in business. Um, she's very passionate about that. So that that really changes the atmosphere as you can imagine within the organization and i'm sure she had to fight against way more stereotypes than i did she's mm. one of those people that certainly paved the way for a lot of women um so you know in my experience has been even as a salesperson you know i i've been nothing but accepted and respected at this organization and also by my peers you know i get i get to work closely with colleagues that have um, like vast, uh, just fascinating range of experience and vast knowledge and, and the whole spectrum of experiences I get exposed to through customers and industry partners like CEM. And, you know, I get to learn so much and, and no one in my experience, I don't know what they're thinking in their head, but in my experience, <laughs> people respect the fact that I'm not a technical person, but they're very willing to teach, um, you know, like my colleague Sharon Jit, I learned I've learned so much from him. You know, he's very open to. He understands I'm young. I don't know everything, 
and he's very willing to share his knowledge because ultimately the more successful I am, the better it is for everybody. And so that's that's really that it's been a very positive experience, a lot more positive than the electrical industry. Mm. Um, when I think of if I was an engineer, if I put myself in that position, um, you know, it's very different in sales. But if I'm a female engineer, I think one of the things you need to consider with this industry is that, um, you know, we know that the fossil fuel energy industry is a bit more conservative. They kind of have an old boys club kind of type of culture, right? And that's just led to the industry being dominated by men. But I think what's changing is the renewable sector. It's mm. relatively new. It's not, um, it doesn't have, the culture hasn't really had time to develop the same way that the fossil fuel uh, industry has. And so I think there's an opportunity there for female engineers to maybe pave their own way, you know, as energy, demand for energy increases, uh, technology is changing, you know, you're kind of, it's a bit more of a level playing field. And, and the more this industry grows, I think you're going to see a bigger gap in um, skill sets with engineers, right? We're, we're going to lose talent and there's a lot of opportunity for women to join the field. And so I think if if you're a female engineer and you have this assumption or you're nervous about entering this industry because you think it's really male dominated, um, I think there's so much change happening that that's really not going to be the case as we move mm. forward. And so, you know, I would encourage women engineers to, if you're afraid or concerned or worried about that aspect of this industry, it's it's probably not going to be an issue. In fact, I think they're going to be wanting talent and younger people and diversity to to join um, to join the force because we need it. Right. And and I think it's also a very exciting time. It's really cool to be part of the industry. And, uh, you know, there's so much to learn, but there's also it's such an important transition globally that it's really cool to be a part of. So, yeah, that's my two cents. Well, thank okay. you very much for sharing all of that. That's that's awesome, and uh, thank you for also as a woman and, and you know a female in the in the energy space, paving the the way for the rest of uh, you know the younger women out there who are thinking of uh, of joining the space. So yeah, we yeah, appreciate that, well. Megan. As well. And and uh, Matt, you want to? You're doing a great job. Oh, Keep going. All right, Sergeant <laughs> or or Megan, we we always ask. You know, first of all, is there is there anything that we haven't covered or that you want to cover off? in the in this episode no no person i think we're you good yeah we're okay good. i think cool. we covered all we covered all the different aspects of uh, power generation here awesome so so for our listeners that might be interested in connecting with either of you where is the best way for them to find you uh so you can find me i'm really active on linkedin i'm always on there as i think a lot of people are so i'm you know you just megan roney on linkedin shoot me a connection um i usually accept most people <laughs> <laughs> i'm one of those uh and also you know email um uh, at tormont.com that's an easy way to do it i'm not sure if we should broadcast our, our personal cell phones on here but yeah um there's lots of ways you can go on the Tormont website. If you go on the microgrid page, uh, Charanjit and I are going to get probably an alert that you're you're checking us out, and you can send us a message through there as well. Cool, awesome. And Sarenjit? Uh Likewise, the same. I use LinkedIn a lot uh, uh, for sharing information. Actually, I'm putting a daily post there, so this podcast will probably be channeled through that too. So my contacts can see that too. Um, <laughs> and uh, to obviously. Uh, email uh people could email me as well ssingh at tarmon.com and uh, uh you know feel free to send us a note and we'd like to respond within 24 hours so that's that's our mantra here and uh, see if we can work together and provide you some direction in whether it's energy sustainability or emissions reduction projects uh, we can certainly provide you in some direction there awesome well i put both of you to the test i just uh reached out to connect with both of you on linkedin uh, <laughs> as you were talking so there you go uh, 
it's it's bad that we weren't already connected but anyways thank you both this has been really fun um we've covered as syringe had said we covered a lot of ground uh technical and non-technical a little bit of history a little bit of uh neuroscience uh, and everything in between so, uh thank you both on behalf of lisa and i at energy radio we want to say thank you to our guests today megan roney and saranjit singh uh, Lisa, thank you for setting this up and for leading most of the conversation. Uh, I know I know you're an engine girl at heart, so uh, this is a fun conversation. And our producer, Mark Charbonneau, the man behind the glass, the man with a much better uh, Movember mustache than me, always making us sound and look good. I am Matt Lunsink, and this was episode 60 of Energy Radio. Until next time, uh, stay safe and have fun.